Well, good morning. Uh, if you're visiting Canterbury today, just uh, a very, very warm welcome. Uh, we, over the last uh, six weeks, have been going through a, a series called uh, Gospel-Shaped Living. And uh, we've been uh, contemplating, been instructed, been challenged to really try and understand in our own lives what it means to be gospel-centred. And you might say, well, what does gospel-centred mean? Well, that means that you align yourself to the Lordship of Christ in your own life and that is displayed in every area of your life. You know, we've considered uh, things like being light and darkness. We've considered what it means to be united as a collective body of God's people in a divided world. We've considered what it means to serve, and not just serving one another, but uh, serving the community in which we live. And this is not just for a good works basis, but we serve out of a love for Jesus. We've also looked at what it means to be a, a generous church, a truthful church, a truthful church that's founded upon God's word and God's word alone, a truthful church that's founded on the, the work and person of Christ because he is the way, the truth and the life. And uh, last week we, we looked at how to be a, a joyful church. Even when our circumstances don't dictate that, even though we, we may be suffering or in trial or in persecution, to be a joyful church is to remember our Saviour and His salvation. To remember we have been redeemed, we've been reconciled, we have peace with God. That should be the fuel within our, in our hearts to, to go into this world and, and display God's love to our neighbours, to our friends, to our workmates. So that's, that's where we've been over the last six weeks. I hope you've been impacted by the, the study of God's word in these areas. I hope you have afresh realised to be gospel-centred, to be mission-centred is another way of putting it, or to, to be following Christ in this way has many facets of application. To be light, to be united, to be serving, to be generous, to be truthful, to be joyful. And today we're going to look at a, the final, sort of, I guess what I call the foundation stone in being gospel-centred. And I think without this foundation stone, none of the other things happen. So we've actually probably done it in reverse. We perhaps should have started with this particular truth. But I think as we've, we've gone through, we've, got to, we've come to this point now, we can look at this foundation stone of what does it actually mean to be gospel-centered? What does it mean to be the church in the world? You see, as a, as a community, we're not a separatist-type community. What I mean by that, you know, we're not like the desert fathers who, who went and sat on top of a pole to try and get closer to God. They would sit there for months on end with their Bibles, with their scriptures, and not, not as we have it, they'd have fragments of scriptures, and they, they would thought that part of the being holy, part of getting close to God was to separate themselves completely from, from society. 
not like the Desert Fathers, or, or are we like a monastic order? But you know, Jesus prayed, as we read in, in uh, John chapter 17, he prayed, do not take these disciples of mine out of the world, but comfort them through the Holy Spirit, so that they, they are part of my witness. You see, we're called to be sold in light, not separated from the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. But as a gospel-centered living person, as someone who takes the claims of Jesus personally in your life, we have this responsibility to share the love of Christ. Not just individually, but as a community. You see, John mentioned his prayer. We, we are under attack as a church. You know, how often do you, you get involved in a conversation inside your workplace or, or wherever it may be, in the schoolyard or in the university, where you hear this sort of line of thinking, oh, I'd never be a Christian because you're just, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Who's heard that conversation? Yeah, we hear it often, don't we? Because society views us as hypocritical, inconsistent, we're accused of, you know, not practicing what we preach. You know, we get tainted by some atrocities that occur in, in some part of the church and, and all of a sudden we become guilty by association. Well, all Christians are like that. This is difficult to take. It's a hard pill to swallow when we start thinking through some of these things. Because what actually happens is the name of Christ, the name we love, the name we worship, becomes mocked and ridiculed. And we see our friends mocking and ridiculing our beliefs and going down a cycle of destruction as they remove absolute truth and give rise to, to secular ethics. And this is somewhat, we want, to, we want to look at some of this today, is, okay, well, how do we reverse that trend? How are we going to be gospel-centered within this place, within Canterbury Gardens, individually and corporately, so that the world sees us as light, sees us as something that is different. And see, this is not new. If you want to just briefly turn to Revelation chapter uh, 3 and 4. I'm going to spend a lot of time here, but I think this is kind of insightful because John received a vision from the resurrected Christ about, about um, certain things that were going on. And there are seven churches mentioned in the, in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. And five of those seven churches, the Lord of the church, Christ himself, says, I have these things against you. And you've got to realize that these churches are only 40 years old. They've been founded 40 years earlier by, by the Apostle Paul, most likely from the ministry of Ephesus. Ephesus was one that he, he founded as a church. 
and then beyond that his missionary endeavor moved into to Asia Minor and you have these churches that are formed. You have Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis and um, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then Christ himself says, well, I want to encourage you to press on, but these are the things that I have against you in these churches, and I'll just briefly note them for you, just so you you get an idea of this. See, Ephesus had lost its first love. Ephesus had lost its first love. And this is an incredible warning for us. This church was vibrant. It was founded on the, on the apostles teaching them, yet they lost their first love. It's interesting because, because John records that you've, you've lost your first love, but one thing I don't have against you is you, you hate the Nicolaitans just like I do. Now, the Nicolaitans were, were twisting the truth. So you could say that this church, they were solid on truth, but they lost their love for Christ. They missed the compassion that was required in serving one another in love. Then you have Pergamon and Thyatira who who suffer similar types of things. They were Pergamon particularly was what we call syncretonistic in, in worship. That means they, they took on a whole lot of different things, a whole lot of different faiths. And said, All these ways lead to God. And John tells us here that, that they particularly were like um, Balaam. And if you remember your Old Testament at all, you, you know that um, Balaam and Balak were, were trying to move the people of Israel away from God by worshipping other gods. And that's what was accused here of this church at Pergamum. Hey, you're, you're synchronistic. We today would probably call it ecumenical. Many ways will lead to Christ. Thyatira was uh, tolerated idolatry and sexual immorality through false teachers. So they listened to some false teaching and and this influenced them in such a way that the practice was idolatry and sexual immorality. Sardis was a church, uh, you read that in the start of chapter 3 of Revelation, which uh, this one really horrified me as I thought through this. This church appeared alive, but was dead. Appeared alive, but was dead. So they played church. They came together, they gathered, they worshipped, they took the sacraments. They did the churchy things, but in their hearts they were dead. It was a form with no living reality. And then Laodicea. You're neither, we all know Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'll spit you out of my mouth. So Laodicea was basically just a social club. They weren't saved. They were unregenerated. 
the Lord makes an incredibly gracious offer and says, well, behold, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. If you, wa- if you want to repent of what you're doing, yes, I will enter in. But you see, this here gives me a picture of how churches can slip, how churches can erode away from Christ as center. This only took 40 years. Losing your first love, taking on all forms of worship, tolerating idolatry, sexual immorality, appearing live but are dead. And I think we need to to think through these things because these things are important. Because as a church here at Canterbury Gardens, how how do we avoid being a church that's described like this? How, right here and right now, if the Lord was to come back and, and look at our deeds, look at our heart, how would we be described? I can't answer that question. You can answer that question, maybe because you may understand your own heart. But it's our testimony overall that will answer the question. It's our missional outlook that is the way we are perceived by those around this property that will enable us to answer that question. So I want to encourage you today, and I encourage you by looking at Galatians chapter 5 and 6. It's going to be a bit of a helicopter tour. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians 5 and 6 because I think these things are important if we want to be gospel-centered as a community. I'm just going to read some selected verses from the first part of chapter 5 and later in chapter 5 we'll concentrate a little bit more heavily as well as the start of chapter 6. You see, you know a little bit about the the church at Galatia. We know from right at the start in in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul lays a straight complaint at them. Normally when Paul writes a letter to a church, he's normally quite nice in his introduction, right? He's normally very loving, if you like to speak. Grace and peace to you, and I thank God about something about you. Even to the church at Corinth, he did that. Not at Galatians. There was no thanksgiving. There was no commending of any work. He got straight to the point. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. At the heart of this letter, as Paul is saying, you you don't understand the gospel of grace. You were trying to be saved through some other means. You were trying to be saved through either circumcision or, or saved through... Uh, certain festivals, certain ordinances, certain laws. You've missed the gospel of Christ. And that's as hard as he, as he writes this letter. And I think there's some wonderful instruction later in this letter, which we're going to look at through chapter 5, is, okay, what should be the heart of us? How should our hearts respond? In what way should we be gospel-centered? And 
this is very pertinent as we, we look at today's topic. So we pick up in, in chapter 5. And we have a summary statement that he, he flies out in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's talking here in the context of this letter. Don't be fooled by the false gospel. Realize that it's by grace you are saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the marvelous, amazing grace we enjoy. We don't have to do one iota towards our salvation. It's all done by Christ. Christ all in all. His death, why did he die? Because of our sin. His burial shows he died. His resurrection shows he conquered sin. Is now seated at the right hand of God. And why? That's a gift. A gift to you and I. A gift so marvelous, so rich, so free, that by faith we can grasp it. We can grab hold of it. And it's eternally secure. And that's what Paul is lamenting here with this church. He says, don't be fooled by any other gospel. It is Christ, it is Christ alone. Stand firm, stand solid, stand strong. And don't add anything to it. Don't add your traditions. Don't add your view and your works because that is a false gospel. And then he goes further down in, in, in verse 6 and he, he talks about this. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Actually, I want to go back and read verse 5, sorry. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You see, he reinstates what the gospel is here in such a beautiful way. And notice here that he's saying, I don't care if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. And that would be a natural divide between Jew and Gentile. I don't care if you're Jew or Gentile. None of that counts for anything because now you are a new creation in Christ. He states that over in, in I think, uh, 6... Uh, six. Sorry, I can't find it. I'll come back to it. Six, twelve, fifteen. Yes, six, fifteen. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And that's what he's saying. It says. What is important is you are a new creation. You are in Christ. And that comes by the Spirit through faith. You see, righteousness is attained by the Spirit through faith and love is the expression of faith. Faith is the root. Love is the fruit, if you like, in this new relationship. Faith is the root. And love is the fruit. 
And he carries on, and let's read verse 13 through 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers, and you do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, that you are not consumed by one another. So he starts throwing in some warnings here. And he, he says, just in the same way that legalism can kill your faith, just in the same way as, as you adding in a whole lot of tradition, adding in a whole lot of law, just as that is a killer of the gospel, so is using your grace in a way that is license. So he says this, for you are... Called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And, you know, he deals with this in Romans chapter 6 as well. You know, you remember those verses there uh, where he asked the question, shall I keep on going sinning because, so that grace may increase? By no means. Make it a denoto. By no means. Do not continue to sin because you are slaves to righteousness. You see, I've always, I'm very thankful to Jerry Bridges. Anybody here read much from Jerry Bridges? Yeah, okay. You're blessed because you've read Jerry Bridges. No. <laughs> Jerry Bridges does this wonderful picture where you have a roadway, and, and picture this roadway, and you have a, a, a ditch on each side of the roadway. Okay, if you're living in Melbourne yesterday, they'll be full of water. But that, that's the way it is. So you've, you've got a roadway and you've got a ditch, and he likened the ditch on each side of the roadway, one as legalism and one as license. Okay? And the roadway was grace. And the freedom we have in grace to stay on the road, and if you start slipping to one or the other, you'll slip off the road, so to speak. There was a great picture of, of where we have our freedom. We have our freedom in the, in the, in the boundaries of what God's grace is teaches us but we can abuse God's grace by either saying oh I'll just carry on sinning I'll just carry on in my own lifestyle I'll just carry on doing the things I know I should not do yielding to the, the will and my desires it's not living by grace that's grace abusing just like legalism is grace abuse because you do not understand the freedom that you have in Christ So this is where he drills at the heart. He's saying, if you want to be gospel-centered, you've got to understand grace firstly. You've got to understand that you have been freed from your sin. So live like it. Walk like it. Be led by it, as we'll read shortly. A couple of other really interesting things in these three verses, which I just want to highlight to you. It gives a contrast here. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So don't fall into license. Don't continue to do the things that, that you know are, are abusing God's grace. But through love, serve one another. But through love, serve one another. 
I think a better translation of this would be this. In love, act as slaves toward one another. Write that down. In love, act as slaves towards one another. See, the root word here is, you know the word doulos, right? We, we have a ship called doulos, a servant ship. Doulos is the, 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 the word commonly uh, translated as serve. However, it can be also translated as slave. And the word here is doloeti. And it has the sense that that we should act as slaves in love toward one another. That, to me, has huge impact as I consider the way I serve my fellow brother and sister. Christ gave the example as he washed his disciples' feet of what service was. Christ gave the ultimate example as he went to the cross. And gave up his life while we were still sinners. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love. In love, act as slaves towards one another. Luther famously put this uh, in relation to the commentary on, on this particular chapter. A Christian is perfectly free. A Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. This is the dichotomy we have as the followers of Christ. We are to serve, and we are to serve in the power of His love, because we know when we do this that the whole law is fulfilled. Because the law says you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I think in the context of this uh, passage here, the whole law being fulfilled is being fulfilled by Christ. He's the one who fulfills the law according to Matthew 5.17. He fulfills it through his teaching and, and by highlighting that love, loving one's neighbour is true and the ultimate completion of fulfilment of the law. And by his life... And by going to the cross is the ultimate embodiment of, of the sacrificial love. We see later in chapter 6 that uh, to fulfill the law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. And the wider concern for Paul throughout this letter is to assure believers of their new life in Christ and providing them with um, direct powerful love through the spirit that's indwelling and uh, so I think yeah, the, the fulfillment of the law here is in the person and work of Christ and that enables us to serve one another in love that's the only thing that allows us to serve one another in love or to be a slave in love towards one another it also gives a little warning here notice a little warning I think this is contextually for this church. I think a lot of biting and devouring and argument was going on within Galatia. And he 
clearly says to watch out, watch out for this stuff. Because if you continue to bite and devour one another, you're just consuming one another. There's a picture of animals here tearing a piece of meat apart in hunger. That's the type of strong language that's used in verse 15. And uh, he said, don't be like that. That's not using your freedom. It's not using the grace of Christ to magnify his name. And then he comes down to some practical applications. And let's read these verses together, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will, be, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He turns his focus away from a warning of biting and devouring one another into the practical application of what life in the Spirit is about. And this is the heart of what we should be as gospel-centered people. A total reliance on the Spirit of God to work in our hearts to, to, to produce His fruit. If we are seen as light in this community, if we're seen as unified, if we're seen as generous, if we're seeing as upholding truth, if we're seeing joyful amidst our trials, it's only because of the Spirit of God working in our hearts to develop fruit. The fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, self-control. And this is where he commands, circle these things in your Bible. There is a straight command, walk by the Spirit. Why? So you won't gratify the things of the flesh. You see, there's a war going on in between us, in our hearts. And it's this war between the flesh and the spirit. And for us to be Christ-centered, gospel-centered, mission-oriented people, we need to wrestle with this in our hearts. And we need to determine to walk by the Spirit. It's an active thing. It's not something that's happened in past tense. It's a continual action. So how do you do that? How do you walk by the Spirit? How are you led by the Spirit? Verse 18. Verse 25. How do you live by the Spirit? How do you keep in step with the Spirit? 
It's a very military type turn, this keep in step with the Spirit. If you think about a military marching band, you know, click, 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 click. That's the type of word that's been used here to, to personify being, you know, keeping in step with the Spirit. Well, it's an active process. It's not a let go and let God thing, all right? It's an active process to walk by the Spirit. It's a process to say, I'm going to be shaped by God's Word. Because the Spirit of God takes God's Word, illuminates it in your heart, and causes your actions to change. I'm going to be serious about confession, about repentance, about fighting the things of the flesh. Notice the things of the flesh that are noted there. There's 15 of them. I think I counted from about verse, um, starting at uh, verse 20 and just through the start of 21. It's list number 4 through maybe 13. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. They're all stuff that destroys churches. They're community-related fleshly responses to all sorts of things. And these are things we consistently need to nail to the cross of Christ. Realize that Christ has died for those sins, even though we struggle within with these fits of anger, with these rivalries, with these jealousies, with these divisions. Don't let those things get a foothold in your heart. Fall upon the mercy of God and upon his grace to develop the fruit in your life that's necessary. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness. You see, when this happens, what will result is start of chapter 6. And I'll read this briefly for you because we are getting low on time. This is how we will act towards one another in community. If we are walking by the Spirit, if we're being led by the Spirit, if we're being keeping in step with the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, we'll have a real ministry of reconciliation and restoration towards one another. It says here, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin or trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then there's warnings around that. Keep watch on yourselves lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not for his neighbour. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that also he reaps. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith.
when we walk by the Spirit, when we keep in step with the Spirit, when we're led by the Spirit, our love towards one another and towards the community within us or around us will be on display. We'll restore one another gently. We'll keep watch on our own lives to make sure that we're not in a place of hypocrisy. These things here are about testing your own work, about sharing the things you have been taught, about not being deceived, relate to the fact that you know, you'll reap what you sow. So ensure that there is no hypocrisy. Ensure you have been walking by the Spirit so when you are ministering to others, it is God's grace that is being applied across the situation. So for us to be gospel-centered, mission-focused, we must be people who walk by the Spirit. And this is not looking for some experience beyond the bounds of understanding. This is dealing with brass tacks inside our lives, dealing with our fleshly responses versus dealing with what the Spirit is prompting us to do. I want to spend a couple of minutes now and I want you to spend some time with the Lord just thinking through these things in quiet prayer and meditation. Ask the Lord to to teach you what it means to walk by his spirit, to be led by his spirit, to live by his spirit and to keep in step with his spirit. Because this is vitally important for us as a church. Vitally important. That as his people, we realize that all our work is based on his spirit dwelling within us, comforting us, exhorting us, refining us to be like Christ in this world. So just spend some time in prayer and then I will close. Shall we stand and pray together? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by your mercy you have called us into a relationship that is beyond our understanding. Father, this morning as we've considered in our own lives and our own hearts what it means to walk by the Spirit, 
Father, we pray that you will continue to transform us into a church here at Canterbury Gardens that is known to be empowered by your Spirit. There's no one to proclaim Christ that is known to serve one another in love with compassion. Father, these things are difficult and we acknowledge openly that we cannot do this unless your Spirit prompts and guides. We ask for your hand of blessing upon the things we do in your name. Father, we ask that you will continually draw us to the foot of the cross. That you'll continually impart upon our hearts the need to walk by your Spirit. So we pray these things now in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.